Our good friends at Johnio welcome you to this episode. Now, the iconic Johnio clothing brand logo of the surfer and his longboard first caught my eye several years ago, but it's the signature Johnio style where West Coast meets East Coast prep that truly changed the game for me, and I've been wearing Johnio ever since. And now our listeners can use promo code RICHTAKE at checkout for 20% off your first order at johnny-o.com. That's 20% off the regular price. Price at johnny-o.com. Use the promo code RICHTAKE at checkout for 20% off your first order. Exploring the impact of sports. Welcome, Welcome to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Having conversations and hearing personal stories from those who have been impacted. Built and inspired by the role of sports in their lives. Here's your host, Richmond Weaver. This is episode 114. Thanks for being an investor by investing your time to listen. While there are many people that don't have this gravitational pull to sports, there's no argument that in the world we live today, There is a true power of sports, and it goes well beyond just being a game. With the help of our guest this episode, Dr. Michael Serrazio, we explore not only part of his journey that would lead him to write a book about sports, but we also unpack some of those unique qualities of sports in our society by diving into his latest book, The Power of Sports, Media and Spectacle in American Culture, where he spent countless hours drawing on in-depth interviews with dozens of high-profile leaders and professionals in sports, media, and journalism. Dr. Serrazio is a faculty member in the Department of Communication at Boston College and is an award-winning journalist writing for both scholarly and popular publications, and he's also the author of another book, Your Ad Here, The Cool Sell of Guerrilla Marketing. Here's episode 114 with Michael Serrazio. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Rich Take on Sports here at Boston College with Dr. Michael Serrazio. Thank you so much for letting me steal some of your time. Thank you very much for coming. It's, I really appreciate the chance to talk to you about the book. Well, it's easy to come when it's a day like this. It is, and it, it isn't always a day like this. So we, we, we rolled out the red, t- red carpet for you. You definitely did. <laughs> now, obviously, we are going to talk about your book, The Power of Sports, Media, and Spectacle, and but... I want to dive in a little bit more about your journey of even get to a point where you're writing a book about the power of sports. Because as we've been talking a little bit, sports has been very big in my life. And it's one of the reasons why I started the podcast, just because of that power of sports. So when did you start feeling that power of sports? Yeah, it's funny. I think like a lot of... um I think like a lot of people, some of my earliest memories are embedded within sports culture. You know, I mean, the, when I think back to the youngest days, um, it is on the playing fields, learning baseball, learning soccer, things like that. Um, and similarly, uh, some of my deepest and most powerful uh, emotional memories are connecting with family uh, and friends through sports culture. So I think, I think it was that sense that there's something about sports that's embedded really, really powerfully in our social tissue as human beings. Something about sports that connects people, that brings them together, that at a young age, I think I was aware of, I think I, I sort of um, gained an appreciation for. Um, but it wasn't really until I was starting to, to research and write the book that I was able to start to put, I think, some of those somewhat nebulous feelings into, into words. And you talk about the book is more geared towards American culture, but through your research, are you seeing that it's, is it a worldwide thing, this power of sports? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there's no question. Um, I mean, if you look at, um, if you look at revenues alone, uh, you know, depending on which estimate you use, uh, the global sports industry is worth somewhere between 200 and 700 billion dollars annually. Uh, the U.S. does a pretty good job of making up a good chunk of that. It's maybe around <laughs> 70 billion, but without a doubt, there's something. Um, there is something universal about sports. It is. Um, it is in many ways um, the language that everyone can understand, uh, and particularly international so- sports like soccer, where. 
we're, we're very much because it's a language that's communicated through the body. Uh, you know, it's something that you don't need to necessarily know, uh, you know, the local dialect to be able to appreciate the beauty of, of, of what people do with, with, with their bodies when they're in, at play in sport. Yeah, and so you mean the communication through your body. You're talking about the physical exactly. aspect of that's how people are connecting because why? Well, because in many ways it's something that transcends language, right? It's something that you don't need. You know, if, if, if we think of this, you know, in terms of um, any other form of entertainment, most of those have to be, you know, translated from culture to culture. But, but sports is something that's, that's universal. It's almost every culture in the world enjoys it. Um, it's timeless. There's, there's been almost no society in human history that didn't have sports in some form. So in that sense, it must be something really important and profound and meaningful for it to have endured for so many millennia and across so many different types of people. There must be something about the experience of it that is like fundamental to human experience in some, I think, powerful way. So how much of that is also tied to just we're all competitive, regardless of what people might say that I'm not a competitive person. We all are. It's human nature. It is. It so is. is that part of why there's this gravitational pull towards sports as well? I think so. Yeah, I, I think there is something that um, that is in the human condition that does have a gravitation toward appreciating that competitiveness. I mean, there's something um, there, there's something in the way that sports organizes a game. It says that there's going to be this time and this place that is separate from life that is that is sort of outside the boundaries of what goes on normally everywhere else in the world and and at every moment in time otherwise and i think that the fact that um we like to organize as human beings those spaces and times to be competitive speaks to some some deep longing that's fulfilled by the experience of sports i think so because I, I think it could even go back to i mean the original caveman in terms of hunting mm. the thrill of the hunt that you're starving, you kill something, <laughs> there's a reward <laughs> that had to be emotionally fulfilling, obviously, not only just from how it would satiate you as well, but... Absolutely, yeah. And, and you, can look at, um, you can look at some of, some of the most popular sports in America and the way, that they, um, the way that they mirror some of the hunter-gatherer experience. I'm thinking particularly here of baseball, right? So many of the motions that you see within baseball mirror a lot of the, the sort of um, things that hunter-gatherers would have needed to do, right? Throwing a ball, right, is, 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 is not unlike throwing a spear in order to necessarily catch your prey on the sort of open prairie. And so, um, so I think there are ways that, that those traditions are sort of inscribed into things that we take for granted, motions and experiences and sort of the exhilaration of, um, of the hunt and the competition. Yeah, no, I don't think you realize we're going to have a prehistoric conversation about <laughs> sports, right? <laughs> it can go in a lot of directions for sure, for sure. So let's, let's fast forward back yeah. to modern day times, basically. You mentioned your earliest memories going back to childhood and family. So what were some of those memories? Well, uh, you know, for me, I think, uh, so I'm a native, I'm a native San Diegan. Um, and, uh, wonderful place. A, the wonderful I don't know how place. you left that place. It is in, in February <laughs> in Boston. I ask myself that question. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, for me, uh, some of my, some of my deepest and richest memories, I think like many fans are of connecting with uh, connecting with my parents, connecting with other family members through playing sports, through watching sports. Um, for me in particular, as I got older um, and I wound up relocating around the country, that became the means that I would, um, that I would communicate with you know, family members. And in particular, I'm thinking here of my grandfather um, who lived in San Diego his whole life. And, and even though I moved away, I wanted to have something to talk to him about. And I think Again, like many fans, sports became the lingua franca. Sports became the thing that we had in common at a time when, because of geography, because of age, we were at very different stages of life. And so um, there was something about that connection that's, that's powerful and profound and I think really necessary in our culture in America today. And you mentioned in your book that you had this yearning to connect with your grandfather. Why was that? Well, I mean, I, you know, I think like any, you know, um, 
family or friendship or sort of relationship that um, you care deeply about the person, um, you, you want to have, have a reason to talk to them. I mean, as human beings, we are social creatures. We're competitive creatures, as we said a second ago, but we're also deeply social creatures. And we need reasons to talk to each other. We need, we, we, you know, we, we need, uh, we need a, a license to congregate together. And sports is one of the things that I think more powerfully than anything else in American culture provides that for people. So for me and my grandfather, it became conversation about our beloved San Diego uh, Chargers. Um, and, and I think that was something that, you know, even, even as we didn't have a lot to talk about, otherwise this became the thing that we were able to connect over. Well, every few years you would have something. There would be hope that yeah. the Chargers would be good, right? <laughs> every few decades. <laughs> well, maybe decades. Every few decades right. in that yes. case, yeah. Now, are you still a big San Diego fan? I am. I am. Every time I'm back home, I always try to catch a Padres game. Um, you know, when, when the Chargers moved from San Diego to L.A., um, you know, a lot of San Diegans uh, gave up on them, gave, you know, washed their hands of them. Uh, family members certainly cut the cord. Uh, I understand that. I completely understand the feeling of your team divorcing you and and sort of not wanting to ride it out. Um, and I wanted to give up on that fandom, but you know the reality was when when fall rolled around again, and I I was compelled to you know want to watch games. Uh, it was just uh, it was it was too hard. They were still the Chargers, even and and I think what happened is that now I hold up, hold out some sort of distant hope that they'll move back one day, you know? You think that's a reality? No, not at all. <laughs> but sports is about projecting and irrational about hope, hope right? yes. in the face of uh, empirical reality, which tells you that it's, you know, it's, you know th- things are, uh, you know, when it, I mean, when, when something seems like a long shot, you kind of hope for it in sports culture. And I think the longest of shots is that the Chargers will return to San Diego, but I'll keep rooting for it. Well, that's how loyalty builds because yeah. you started out at an early age. And were you more of a baseball fan or a football fan? I mean, I grew up kind of loving all sports. Um, I grew up playing baseball and playing, um, uh, play, play baseball until I was, you know, in high school roughly. And, and then in high school, I actually wound up getting into roller hockey. Um, and, and I picked up that. Have watched, uh, played tennis a bit too. Have, I've watched all the other sports growing, you know, throughout all life stages. So, um, fairly um, omnivorous when it comes to when it comes to um, the games that we tend to love. Although, you know, I certainly probably tend to watch a little bit more football and hockey and, and baseball than than other things. So roller hockey. Yeah. How did you get into roller hockey? <laughs> well, it was now, obviously the, you didn't have ice in San it Diego. It was the nineties. Yeah, two things: uh, geography and uh, and and era. So geography, yeah. Out west, there's not a lot of ice time like the way that we have here in Boston. And secondly, um, you know, it was of it was roller hockey was a sort of ascendant sport in the '90s when I was in sort of high school and college, and um, that became something that just sort of took off among my sort of network of friends, and I picked it up, and it was it was a great introduction into really loving the speed of hockey uh, as a, as a game, and and definitely sort of baptized me into to hockey as a, as a fandom. So, but yeah, it was very much a product of geographic time and, and place. When's the last time you've been on some roller skates? That's a great question. Uh, you know, it's got to have been like 15 years. Probably when I was back home <laughs> playing some pickup with some friends, hoping that I wasn't going to break any bones, you know? Are you a good, ba- you could go backwards, forwards, you could yeah, mix it up? Kind of, yeah. I mean, you know, the older you get, I mean, one of the things about sports is that it really, uh, it really reminds you of your own mortality, yes. right? Because um, things that you were capable of doing at an earlier age, you either can't do now or you know you shouldn't do now. Um, I, I, I'll give this example. When I was at my previous university, there happened to be a sort of pickup faculty basketball game that uh, I was like, yeah, you know, whatever, I'll meet some meet some I'm colleagues. nervous where this is going. Get to know them. Yeah. <laughs> so the first year broke a toe, the second year broke a finger, the third year broke an ankle. And, and it was basically the, the cosmos <laughs> telling me that you didn't play basketball growing up. You clearly don't know how to play it without, you know, injuring yourself. <laughs> you, you need to just uh, stick to the couch in terms of uh, in terms of that one. So. I can relate because I am a basketball guy, though. I grew up playing basketball, but later on, playing in a wide league, took an elbow right to the mouth, my two front teeth knocked out, and I was like, okay, maybe this is time to step away (laughs) because now it's the, I'm sore for days, 
I pull a hamstring or something goes wrong. Yeah. And, you know, it, but it's frustrating because totally. I still want to be out there playing because I love it, you know, so much. Totally. From that side. But I know physically I just can't. And that's very frustrating. Yeah. Sports celebrates the pinnacle of youth, right? I mean, if you think about, if you think about when people are performing their best as athletes, it's really at kind of their sort of physical potential or their physical peak potential. And, you know, for somebody like me and for, I think a lot of folks, that ceiling was fairly low. Right. <laughs> but, you know, even, even as you get older, you're, you're sort of reminded that the things that you could do when you were younger, it's, it's no longer possible. And mm-hmm. I think that that's one of many powerful lessons uh, of humility that sports delivers to people. It definitely can. And I think that's also the beauty of sports talking about, the physical side, the bodies, and how it can be a form of communication. Because a lot of times you see these athletes, I mean, it's pure artistry. Oh, yeah. In terms of what they can do, and especially on the basketball court. And, I mean, there's just so many examples, yeah. but just high flying. I mean, it's just a, amazing to see that. And I, I think some of these athletes, we look up to, wow, they're just in awe of Absolutely. what they can do. I show, as one of my classes that I teach, where we're focusing on the aesthetic appreciation of sports. I'll show clips of highlight dunks, and I think I usually use like Jordan's dunks. And, uh, you know, um, I, I wish I had the Photoshop capability to do this, but I more or less tell the students, watch this and picture as though Jordan didn't have the ball in his hands. Watch the sort of movement of the body. Watch the gliding through air. Watch the sort of vertical and horizontal, um, you know, uh, tactile skill. And imagine that he didn't have the ball in his hand. I'd say you were you were, you would be more or less watching some sophisticated modern dance, right? Exactly. It's not that far removed. That's right. It's really the, not in terms of the um, sophistication. Now, getting to your book. Yeah. Did you ever have an ambition growing up that I'm going to write a book and it's going to be about sports? <laughs> yeah. So yes and no. So um, growing up, I always knew that I. I I just loved writing. It was it was one of my favorite things. Did it just come natural to you? Uh, yeah, I don't know if it came naturally. I knew that I loved it naturally. Um, I knew that there was something about that experience that was um, really meaningful. Um, I always thought growing up that I would go the journalism route. And actually, um, I did do a year in a master's program in journalism after my undergrad. And I worked as a reporter for a couple of years. So I had actually sort of gone down that. Was it in sports or just? It was generally focused. I did some sports reporting. It was for, actually, it was in Houston, Texas. I was at a um, kind of weekly magazine and I was kind of an all-purpose culture reporter. And um, sometimes I did sports stories. Sometimes they were about other things, religion, politics, music, things like that. Um, And so I always knew, even at that time, that you know, I enjoyed doing long magazine stories, but I always had hoped that maybe I would, I would be able to, to write a book at some point. Um, I didn't know that necessarily that topic would be sports. I, I knew that um, it would probably be something about American culture. I find, I find the subject of American culture fascinating, um, the politics of our culture, the gender issues of our culture. And so when a couple of years ago I was sort of scouting for a new project idea, um, it occurred to me that, you know, there's this there's this opportunity here to maybe write a book about how we can look at sports and see really, um, really, you know, insightful lessons about, uh, about American culture, how you can, how you can look at sports and it can tell us a great deal about what goes on off the field in all kinds of important ways. How long did it take you to write it? So it took me a year to read everything that I needed to read, um, about it. Um, and this was also, I mean, so I say a year, I'm also teaching classes and, you know, doing various other professory things. A year yes, to, And your parent as well. And, yeah, and, and uh, my, my five-year-old beloved daughter uh, and my wife. And, and so, um, so it took me a year to, to, to uh, uh, read everything I needed to read. It took me about a year to interview anybody and everybody that I could. Um, I tried. I yeah, reached, the research is amazing oh, that you have you. in there. Thank I mean, you. It's extensive. It yeah, really I, is. I, I tried to reach out to uh, a couple hundred possible interview contacts. I think it was around 200. Um, and I wound up getting about 60 uh, interviews with uh, sports media folks, people in the business of sports, sports marketing, 
Um, and so, you know, as uh, I guess what sixty out of two hundred as 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 free throw percentage, that's pretty bad. But it's batting <laughs> that's right. average, it's not too it's bad. Very good, yeah. <laughs> not too bad. Um, but um, yeah, and so it took me about a year to interview everybody, a year, year and a half to interview everybody I could, and then about a year to sort of synthesize it and sort of and sort of write it up. Um, but yeah, it's a long. I mean, anytime you tackle a book, it's you, you know that you're stepping on what's going to be a long process. I think it's just amazing that you can compile all of that and then put everything into words like you have and you. how it just flows. Cause I have trouble <laughs> sometimes just writing one paragraph. I can't even imagine the amount of time that you had to be able to put into yeah. writing the book itself. I think it was a work of passion. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it's, um, I think that, um, you know, there's an expression in, in, um, in psychology, uh, which is flow, which is that um, whenever you're in the middle of a task or it can be work, it can be labor, it can be a project, but whenever you're in the middle of doing something that um, you love and that you feel as though um, what the task requires is precisely what you're capable of giving it, um, psychologists have this expression for it, which is flow. You're in the moment. And I believe that athletes themselves, when they're at their sort of peak performance, are in the midst of this kind of thing flow. And so, you know, it seems daunting, but it's a work. I mean, to me, it was it was a joyful experience because, uh, you know, I would sit down. There was nothing more joyful for me than to sit down at the keyboard and to say, like, okay, I got an hour or two right now. I'm just going to see if I can just bang out some words on the page. And the faster the time goes, the more you're in that flow-like moment, the more, the more that you feel sort of um, a, a sort of fusion of, of, of sort of uh, the universe in a way. And so, um, yeah, I mean... I, so I you can feel, relate yourself to Michael Jordan when yes, he was in the flow, yes, right? In, in the tiniest <laughs> way, in the most modest way. Um, no, I'm just, it's, it's a great joy and, and pleasure and Did privilege. you ever have writer's block, though? Um, or, or is that a true thing? Oh, it's a writer's thing. Block. Yeah, for sure. For sure. It's a thing. No, not with this project. I've had it in, in sometimes on occasion, I, you know, um, but no, it wasn't, it didn't really come, come about with this project. I kind of knew some of the ideas I wanted to tinker with, some of the issues I wanted to cover. Um, I, I felt like I had some good material from interviews, some interesting stuff that I'd come across in, in sort of researching the sort of scholarly literature about it. And so, um, yeah, with this one, it was it was a fast write to to a large degree, for better and probably worse. Well, one of the things that I find interesting in the book is how obviously we've talked about the power of sports, but there is this this paradox that you talk about in that sports is both totally useless and valuable at the same time. Describe that. Yeah. So. Um, it is it is it is the fundamental paradox of sports, which is to say that um, you know uh, who wins or loses a game, uh, it 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 is ultimately just a game, right? It's not life and death, right? It is it is um, something that um, you know uh, uh, will not um, you know it it. it it won't save a life. It won't uh, start a war. It won't. I mean, there's there's profoundly important things of human experience, and sports isn't that, right? Um, on the other hand, it is incredibly important. It is worth hundreds of billions of dollars in terms of economic revenues. It is the thing that people organize their identity around. It is the thing that brings communities together. It is the thing that tells men and women how they're supposed to behave. It, it, it tells us political lessons about economic inequality and um, militaristic foreign policy. So it is something that is totally meaningless. Uh, who wins or loses, you know, um, it, it really doesn't matter in the big scope of things. And yet um, it is symbolic and it is related to the big scope of things in all kinds of really important ways in people's lives. Yeah, and how you can see it, the platform can be used for getting messages out. Um, Colin Kaepernick and you know, the um, Munich Games in 72. I mean, there's all of these things that center around sports because it seems like everybody is watching sports at a certain time. Yeah. And that's a big, huge platform. So there is this opportunity where it does affect a lot of people. Yeah. And that is, I think, 
the thing that's made sports even more important in our current era, maybe compared to previous ones, which is that sports is the last thing in American culture that is massive and that is live. Um, so if, if you kind of look at the trajectory of popular culture and entertainment, um, what you've seen over the decades is you've seen more and more fragmentation, right? Um, it used to be that up until the early 1980s, 90% of the country was watching one of three networks every night, right? The whole country is on the same page for a yes, lot of Yes, because we things. didn't have any other options. Right. And you've had just dramatic increase in the options, whether it be cable, whether it be the internet, social media. Sports, though, for all kinds of reasons, is still a centering institution. It's still a centering ritual. And it's still one of the last things that people have to get live. Um, by and large... And you can't cut the cord. You can't, yeah, it's, <laughs> this, is, this is the thing that ESPN and, uh, and the leagues and everyone who's involved in, in putting it on is praying holds true. Yeah, you have to, you know, people have to get it live in a way that Everything else in our culture nowadays, you can do it. You can do on your own time. You can listen. I mean, you can listen to this podcast on your own time. You can um, watch. Uh, you can you can binge watch Game of Thrones on your own time. Um, you know, for for the most part, you know, sports is the last thing that people are compelled to experience together, to be in the moment, to to bring people into the right now. And that makes it really important. It makes it really valuable economically, but it makes it culturally valuable too because as a culture, as a society, we need things that bring us all together on the same page. We need to feel as though we're watching history unfold together. And it's crazy that you say that because I have been in situations, huge Clemson fan, Clemson grad, so I love the fall watching Clemson football. And I've had the situation where I wasn't able to watch the game or go to the game. So put it on DVR and tried to shut myself off from the rest of technology to sure. hear any type of scores or any text messages and whatever, and was able to do that. But even psychologically, as I'm watching it on DVR, there's something in my brain telling me it's not live. Yeah. yeah. Something's not right. And it was weird that I had this feeling, even though it was live to me, because I had no idea what history was unfolding, but I knew it actually wasn't real. Yeah, yeah. And which is crazy. It's crazy, but it's real. I mean, it's the, the feeling that that sense that you had and the attachment to being in the moment is yes, sports it's the, is powerful. Being in the moment. Yes. That's what is so powerful about sports Completely. as well. As, as a player and as, as a fan, I mean, I think one of the we live in a moment in history where people are very distracted right yeah i mean i see this in my students right i'm teaching them in class and i can tell that they are that they're, they're not engaged with no, you no i know that whatever they're looking at on their laptop is nothing to do with what i'm saying right now right but that's but you can you can look around and you can see people you know it's it's tragic it's sad right families sitting at at, at tables at restaurants they're all on their cell phones right they're all I've they're not this. in the moment right as a player Sports forces you to be in the moment, right? Because whatever's happening is happening right now and, and you need to be tuned into it. And as a fan, it forces you to be in the moment, right? Because whatever's happening is happening right now. And I think that's really, that's really important. People crave that. You crave that when you were yes. trying to watch the Clemson game DVR. Yes. And it's not the same. It's something about it. There's something about knowing that the thing I'm watching on TV or the thing that I'm taking part in is shared by all of these other people at this moment in time. That's powerful. And that is very powerful. Yeah, That's right. Can we, uh, or I should say, can sports carry it to the negative side, though, as far as trying to be in the moment where you look at a lot of youth sports these days, where, I mean, the travel leagues, I mean, they're doing games on Saturdays, Sundays, yeah. on holidays. Yeah. It doesn't matter. And it feels like it's, not connecting families together. It's actually pulling them apart sure. as far as communities. Yeah. So can we have a negative? Absolutely. You can always have too much of a good thing and then it turns into a bad thing. Um, yeah, without question. I mean, that is, um, you know, to some degree, that's the economic greediness of sports culture, which is something, you know, the book is part celebration. The book is part critique. Uh, yes. and, and the critique... And that's usually, what I really enjoy about it because you. you do... 
have both sides. Yeah, and I think what you're describing is the fact that um, for all of its cultural value, for all of its inspiration, for all of its community building, um, all of which are good things, um, sports also is business. It's an industry, and um, so much of what we love about sports comes at a tremendous cost because, uh, again, going back to the examples you gave, um, you know, youth, ath- you know, youth athletes who are wanting to take part in stuff, that's, that's, a, that's a lucrative revenue stream for the people who um, can profit off of, off of that interest and participation. As fans, um, we are cash registers for our teams. We, we love our favorite teams. Our teams look at us as a source of revenue, right? We often mistake that our favorite teams love us as much as we love our favorite teams. That is a that is a delusion among fans. And why do you say that? Well, I say that as someone whose favorite team didn't care at all. <laughs> they about, left. Yeah, right? they left. I mean, San Diego. Yeah, and I think you can you can you can talk to any Sonics fan in Seattle, any Whalers fan in Hartford, any Expos fan in Montreal, any any fan, uh, you know, Rams fan in St. Louis, um, for whom there was more money for the team to make down the road. There was some, you know, some, some sub, you know, taxpayer subsidized stadia that was going to be built somewhere down the road. Um, you know, we are told constantly that these, this is this, you know, they, they used to say at, at Jack Murphy Qualcomm Stadium in San Diego, they used to say, well, here comes your San Diego Chargers. They're not, they're not ours. We, we believe they are because we build community around and we them. We want to believe that we though. We want to believe that, but they're not ours. They're, they're, it's a corporate property owned by a you know a billionaire uh, for whom you know greed was more important than loyalty. We're really loyal to, to our favorite teams. Our favorite teams are not really loyal to us. Yeah, because it again it is a true business. A business. But as fans, you get caught up in becoming a fanatic. Completely. And you have blinders on, and you don't understand the economic power of what greed does with the money that's involved, especially with the, the dollar amounts now for media rights, Completely. television contracts. Mm-hmm. Is there a point that, are we reaching a, a ceiling with these? I mean, is, it, is there uh, an opportunity where this, could, this bubble could burst? They've been asking this question in the, the sports media business for it doesn't seem a while like it, now. Though. Yeah, it has yet. So um, even during the last uh, Great Recession 10 years ago, uh, you know, cataclysmic economic downturn, sports chugged along pretty healthy compared to other businesses, compared to other industries. I think the question of whether or not there's a ceiling, whether or not there'll be a, 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 a burst of the bubble will be... That is a question that will have a technological answer, I think. And what do you mean by that? By that, I mean um, the young people running around outside the the window here on campus and their technological habits will determine whether or not there is a, um, whether or not the media rights bubble bursts. If, if, as we're already seeing... So if they turn their TV off. If they cut the cord, if they no longer make it a priority to sit through three, four hour long games. That is not the content nature, commercially interrupted three, four hour games. That's not the nature of content these young people like to consume. For technological reasons, um, for just reasons of attention span habits. So if, if, um, if because of their kind of technological bubble that they live in, sports does not format itself for those tastes, I think what you'll see is there's definitely a potential for that bubble to burst. But it's still the safest property to invest in. It's still, the, it's, sports is, keeps, the, keeps the lights on yes. at the networks these days, right? It does. So it's okay for now, but I feel as though as a college professor, I can see in slow motion, in real time, my students' media habits dramatically changing. And look, if, 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 you know, all of them who graduate this year go off, get an apartment somewhere, don't wind up getting a cable subscription, that, that the, the, the pyramid, the money pyramid starts, starts cracking. It's a shift a little bit. So we'll see what yeah. happens. Maybe sports can adapt to that in terms of how it delivers the content, what format, how it formats itself. Um, but then the other problem too, again, I said a second ago, is does sports have an attention span problem, Right. 
I mean, I love the immersive. I know I do for baseball. Yeah, no, hey, yeah, I mean. <laughs> I can't watch it. I, trust me, it is something, that, yeah, yeah, it is something that, um, that, that is, is difficult uh, to deal with. This is one of the reasons why uh, soccer, especially, you know, with each passing year, the, the more impatient I become, the more patient I get the sense that other audiences become, the more soccer presents itself as bang, bang, 45 minutes, no interruption, take a break, 45 minutes, no That's interruption. Right. You know, um, it's hard to sell to a younger audience. Can you sit for four hours with commercial breaks every time there's a pitching change? These yeah. are, that's a tough sell. It is a, a tough very sell. tough sell, especially at what I refer to this generation as the microwave generation. They want things instant. They Definitely. want it now. Yeah. And baseball just seems to be too slow. And I even think it's not just immune to, or it's just not just baseball, because once you start adding the TV to these other sports, just the amount of commercials yeah. that they have built in just disrupts the flow. And then in, instead of an hour and a half game, it's all of a sudden now it's a three-hour event that you have to watch. But there's 90 minutes of commercials. It's great. And there, there you have, again, the sort of collision between commercial greed, like literally commercial greed in the sense that like there's greed to put more commercials in and what audiences uh, can sit through and what they can tolerate and how you're going to sort of balance those two things. And then again, technology. Why would you sit through four hours of a game when you can dial up uh, you know, on, on, on YouTube or whatever and find the top two minutes of highlights from it, right? Like that's... I mean, I can make an argument for why I might enjoy that for a different sport or whatever. But like, if you're an 18 year old kid and you're like, well, I could sit through all that. But like the really cool James Harden dunk, you know, I can just like pull up on YouTube. I don't have to sit through the whole two and a half hour long, uh, you know, uh, you know, extended version of that. So, again, these are sort of technological challenges that the industry has to grapple with. My wife always says when we're watching basketball. Oh, I don't have to watch until the last three to five minutes <laughs> of the game, and then I'm good. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And so, well, that and that too, you know, is an argument for the superior position of the college game to the pro game, right? I mean, because <clears throat> being shorter in nature, uh, every point matters more, it right? Does. And it's not just like kind of a you know a slow buildup like if, of you know two or three quarters of nobody getting back on defense you know until like the <laughs> until the very uh, you know the very ending so yeah no your yeah. wife is correct in that and, and I think that's the holds true for the passion that you also see for college football because it's a shorter season yeah. um, and then it seems right now the NFL is in the news 365 days yeah. a year. And obviously, they just tried to have a different league, and the XFL is coming as well. And I just think to what you were talking about earlier, is there too much of a good thing? And I think there there can be, for sure. And even for football, for sure. That I, I think we like having a little bit of a break and building up. All right, there's going to be hope. We have hope for the next season, but we need to. Yes. Not focus on it for a little bit. I'm I I am a I'm an NFL fan. I'm a diehard Chargers fan. I could not care less about the draft. I could not care less about the combine. I do not want to think about pro football in April. It's a little much, and, I, and just to see six hundred thousand people ascended on Nashville, yeah. to watch the draft. Yeah. Well, what they're selling there though is yeah. So on one level, uh, it's the actual thing itself, like a bunch of guys in suits getting together in a room to decide that they want one guy to play on their team sounds absurd to be able to sell that content, right? Like it's like, it's like the equivalent of like, if you're a kid and you're picking teams on like the playground lot or whatever, like, you know, like, oh yeah, like this would be really entertaining if like millions of people were to watch. No, it's absurd on that level. But what the NFL I think has done successfully is that they have marketed that as a fan communal experience, right? So you sort of, this is another opportunity to sell to people the community that comes together around their beloved franchise. And that is, as I think I may have said that's earlier, that's worth a lot. Yes. Your identity and your community, which sports helps define, is the most valuable thing that sports can sell. An entity like ESPN and other sports programmers and can they be 
non-biased though? <laughs> Boy, it's tough. I mean, this is a tricky question, right? Um, because so there's always going to be the fundamental conflict of interest that any network, uh, ESPN or otherwise, is going to have if you're paying for the rights to air the content that you then want to report on as well. Um, in the case of ESPN, this is sort of most famous around their involvement in the League of Denial concussion documentary mm -hmm. and then dropping out from it. And a lot of people thought it was because they've got a very lucrative multi-billion dollar deal with the NFL. That's the sort of most famous example of it. But um, the question that I actually have that I didn't, I mean, I sort of teased at in the book and I don't really got it, I didn't really get it a good answer, but maybe I'll throw it back at you is, do you as a fan want journalists and the media to be objective about the teams that you love that they cover like do you want do you want when you're watching um, a Clemson game um, like would you prefer if that game you know that that Clemson Alabama game was broadcast by some totally just die hard Clemson uh, Clemson fan or do you prefer that it's it's being broadcast by uh, you know, Kirk Herbstreit or whoever the sort of neutral arbiter That's that right. ESPN assigns to the game. This is something that I just, I don't know. Do fans want objectivity from their favorite sports media? Would you, would you prefer to watch a, a homer broadcast your, your favorite team's game? I or think do you want I, some objective? I think I'm in the minority here. I want somebody objective. Mm. And let me make my own decisions as far in opinions based on what I see and what I'm hearing. But I don't need to hear that, oh, Clemson is getting you know, screwed on every call or whatever. I want to hear the game called in its natural form and just let me make the decision. Yeah. You know, but I think I'm in the minority. I think yeah. most fans want to hear their local team. Yeah. And they might feel that they, that they have more insight and back to that community yeah. and being connected. This is our team. This yeah. is, yeah. that's our guy right. calling the game, right? right? It's our tribe. It's, it's our a, tribe. Yeah. Yes. And I get that, but I, I, that's why I think I'm the minority. I suspect you are. Anecdotally, I have no sort of evidence to really know one way or the other on that. But I, th I think that, I think that because fans aren't objective about their teams, it would seem odd that there would be many like you that would <laughs> exactly. want somebody to They're be objective. <laughs> yeah, it's by definition, right? They are fanatics. And so it's a challenge for these networks. It's a challenge for every sports journalist. Now, what about, can somebody, like, an entity like ESPN, can they make a sport popular? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think that, there's, or mainstream. Yeah. So there's always there's always a kind of um, there's always kind of a, a sort of cyclical tension there, which is that you know does ESPN push sports onto fans and certain storylines and certain athletes, or are they responding to fan demand? And I, I feel as though yeah, are they pushing some of the demand? Yeah, yeah. Are they pushing or the demand? It, or are they say. responding to it? That I think is one of those sort of like chicken and egg questions, right? I think in some cases over the years you can see um, probably ESPN pushing um, certain athletes and certain storylines uh, more than people necessarily wanted. And I'm thinking of here things like, you know, like it seems as though Tim Tebow's coverage by ESPN possibly outstrips the demand or necessarily the sort of professional talent level that would have been given to any other quarterback of that same that same level but it's it is kind of a chicken or egg question you know there there's there's not like some other universe where we can run an experiment and ESPN can cover things differently and we can see how fans would react to it we only have this universe to sort of see how uh, the big sports media operates. And there is no question that they do. All sports media do have um, pack-like tendencies, right? So there is kind of a groupthink that's true of journalism in general. And they are ultimately also attracted to uh, bigger markets, more popular players, right? I mean, there is, there is a bias in that way um, toward pushing, you know, this, just give you an example of this. The Knicks have been terrible, right, for like yes. a generation, right? Um, but so have the, so have the Sacramento Kings been terrible mm -hmm. for like a generation, right? Um, 
ESPN's not covering both of those franchises with the same uh, attentiveness because, you know, New York City's center of the universe, likes to think of itself as the center of the universe. Boston person <laughs> says that here. Um, but, but it's, you know, I mean, it's, it's, they're, 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 they're covering in a way that's commensurate with what they assume the market size and the sort of revenues dictate. And so, um, you know, I think there are definitely biases where, uh, you know, a sports media institution like ESPN can push stuff onto fans, but fans can also reject it and not and not pay attention. And some things flop, right? I mean, like not everything takes. Well, it's it's interesting just the power that you see, like just over the years, the UFC has gained so much momentum. Now, I think there's a whole host of factors that go into it, but I know for sure ESPN and Fox Sports covering it and promoting it is one of the main factors that is increasing the popularity of the sport. Now, again, I think there's something in human nature that just the barbaric nature of it, you know, lends itself sure, to sure. having a lot of people watch. But it's yeah. just fascinating to see the, the power that some of these media moguls, you know, have in being able to influence our viewing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, there's no question that, um, that uh, you know, Sports media can can make something into a story, can make something into a uh, into a thing, and, and and you know the other big trend that we haven't sort of talked about yet is the fact that um, sports media has seen a dramatic shift uh, away from objective reporting and toward um, sort of hot take, yes, uh, opinions, uh, opinion opinion oriented hot take formats. It's especially true. Um, in terms of ESPN and the TV sports media, but it's also true as well uh, in terms of sort of what's not called print, but what's more called like sort of online sports journalism, right? And the shift away from necessarily just reporting a story to having a clever angle on it. And, and, um, and that, you know, that's certainly on one hand responding to the fact that it's an opinion is cheap, right? It's a very, very cheap thing to, uh, uh, to as, you know, as a, as a form of journalistic output, it's cheap to just have an opinion as opposed to having to go spend time to report something in depth that takes time and money. Um, but there's, you know, also a way in which, um, you know, fans uh, are drawn probably toward some of that, uh, you know, sort of. Because um, yeah, every fan has their own opinion as well. Exactly. And they love debating. Exactly. Who's the greatest? Who team exactly. should have won? But yeah. there's, is there also, though, the uh, other side of it that there's just so much content out there as well? It's, is, is this an avenue where they're trying to just get eyeballs and that's one way to do it? Absolutely. Um, because there is such an infinite array of content that people can choose from now. Audiences um, have, you know, any, they, they have the option of anything that's available to them online. How is it that you differentiate yourself? Exactly. How is it that um, you sort of leave your mark? And, and one of the ways that sports media and, and, and certain pundits within the sports media think that the answer to that is, is to sort of come at it with a, with a hot take, to sort of stir up sensation and controversy, uh, because that's the thing theoretically that sets you apart from, uh, from again, just the infinite amount of, of content that's available for audiences. What was the biggest thing that you learned when you finished the book? Wow, that's a great question. Um, so I think one of the, one of the biggest things... I'll, I'll take it this direction. Um, I think one of the, the biggest things that I feel like I learned was um, the degree to which the sports media feels really under pressure and um, feels like we're, we're moving into a different era that demands something different, but nobody's quite figured out what that solution is going to be. Nobody's quite figured out what, um, what, the new, what the new format, what the new delivery system, what the new genre looks like. Um, you know, um, you see experiments with this. You see strategies of, well, let's incorporate more of audience tweets. Let's, um, let's have someone come out and deliver 
an even more you know insane um, rab you know um, um, you know inst instigate uh, takes you know uh, uh, more incendiary takes. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're dabbling with a lot of different things, but I don't think anybody's really figured out where this thing goes next as far as what had been a fairly stable, lucrative, orderly, profitable system is really in, 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 in not disarray, but it's being, f everything sort of yeah, trying like to figure things out now. called into question. Well, it yeah. used to be, I mean, you knew the format. Yeah. Right. And now it's, a, it's a little bit different. Yeah. Did that surprise you? Well, it, I mean, it, it did to some degree. I mean, I think, you know, the, this book is, is one of many things that I sort of research, but broadly speaking, my, my area of research is, is sort of the media, the business of media, um, journalism, uh, political communication, advertising. So sports is one form of content that I study, but I also study um, branding and I study uh, political uh, uh, communication. And so... Um, I see many of the same trends showing up in other areas of the media, music, things like that. Um, but um, sports is, you know, just is, is more lucrative than any of those other areas. So the fact that you're seeing these challenges that the industry faces, um, I think, is really telling and powerful. Yeah. Now, you mentioned your other yeah. side of branding. So your other book, your ad here, The Cool Sale of Guerrilla Marketing, how different was it writing that book versus this book? Well, uh, on one very simplistic uh, level, uh, that book was sort of the thing that came out of my dissertation when I was sort of finishing my PhD. Um, so that book uh, sort of had to be a, a much, uh, I think, a, a more sort of academic scholarly exercise. And I think, um, you know, I, I think with this one, I, I very much set out to to try to to try to make um, this topic as accessible as possible, right? Um, to try to take a lot of the ideas and a lot of the um, sort of critiques that you find in more scholarly publications and to try to translate those as best as possible uh, for an, a sort of non-professor audience. And so uh, that was definitely the difference, although the first book was based on interviews with advertising folks. This one was just sort of based on with interviews with sports media folks. I'm still fundamentally a, a sort of journalist at the end of the day in terms of how I go about researching and, and reporting a project. Well, you do a bunch of research. <laughs> Thank that you. That's for certain. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. And wrapping up here, I always like to do research in terms of words of wisdom. Yeah. Pulling out words of wisdom from other, indivi other individuals and I'd love to hear some phrases, quotes, or mottos, or just life advice that has meant a lot to you. Yeah, it's funny that you asked this. Um, I had, uh, at the end of every academic year, um, on the sort of last day of the semester, I, I sort of offer, uh, I offer to, to my students, um, you know, some, some thoughts and some, usually just some quotes that I've come across uh, over the years uh, that I think uh, tend to uh, tend to tend to stick with me, and so um, a few of them as 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 they um, as they come to mind here. Um, one of them is uh, is the fact that um, I think it's a Charles Darwin quote, which is that uh, um, the highest possible I think it's something like the highest possible moral stage a human being uh, can achieve is when they realize that they can control their own thoughts, and um, I'm, I'm going to butcher that quote slightly, yeah. but um, but more or less, um, it is definitely um, uh, a a form of sort of uh, inspirational thinking that uh, I think um, defines a lot of what I feel like I've seen success in. I won't say in myself over the years, but success in other people, which is to say that. Um, the advice that I often give is that we live in a really distracting time, right? Mm -hmm. It's very easily, it's very easy to become um, taken off your sort of path, uh, you know, in the moment of trying to just focus on the con the thing that you're trying to do long term. If you have long term life goals, professional goals, things like that, we live in a very distracting age where it's very easy to get off task, and so. To me, the more a person is able to exercise willpower, 
that's really simply a product of sort of concentration, right? The, the more that you're able to exercise willpower over whatever it is that you sort of focus on, uh, I think the, 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 um, the greater that you wind up finding that you have success in the, um, in, in the things that you're seeking to achieve. Um, the other thing is, uh, is a quote uh, that I always enjoy from um, Teddy Roosevelt, which is uh, by far and away the greatest... Um, the greatest prize that life has to offer is war, uh, is to be able to work hard at work worth doing. Um, and I very much, very much feel that, uh, in, in, in that's very life. good. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it, 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 it speaks, it's, it's similar to, it's similar to a quote that my father always used to say when I was growing up, which was, um, you won't in life always, um, uh, be able to, to, to do what you love, but you can always love what you do. And, you know, I think what that says, sort of speaks to is is that um, you, you know you kind of make the best of the circumstances that you find yourself in, and you try to um, and you try to apply yourself as as best as possible, and it's a sort of optimistic approach to wherever you sort of find yourself. And the final quote that I'll I'll leave you with is actually the one that I I keep up um, highest on my uh, on my bulletin board there. Uh, which is a quote, which is uh, there, but for the grace of God, go I. Yes. Um, and for me, that is very powerful. Yeah, that is always that's always been uh, very much uh, the sort of quote that literally on a day to day, like hour to hour kind of experience, <laughs> I'm I'm very much um, drawn to the truth of that quote, which is that, uh, you know, um, a lot of this just turns out to be good fortune a lot of it just turns out to be luck right we a big argument actually of the book is that um because of sports culture we confuse uh meritocracy for luck um and we confuse having uh just been the beneficiary of good fortune for all kinds of reasons uh good and bad uh with having deserving that good fortune and and that we you know um and i'm telling you that in the realm of sports as in the realm of life uh the championship team worked hard but they caught some breaks too yes and we see it all the time yeah yeah um and so uh it's we we like to mythologize that it's a that it's a level playing field that life's a level playing field i don't think either of those things are true i think it's it's very much for me uh, an expression of grace uh, but but there's a number of other ways that you can sort of chalk it up, and so for me those are those are those tend to be the quotes that tend to stick in stick in memory uh, from Ooh, year to year. Those are very powerful, and thank you for sharing, and and also just thank you for your time. I greatly appreciate it. And so, where can everybody find your book? Probably easiest is just uh, Amazon. Uh, it's on Amazon. The Power of Sports. Um, uh, I'm, uh, um, love the title. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and, uh, you know, I, uh, you know, you, you sort of, you, you work on a project for a long time and then you sort of set it off into the world and you sort of hope that it, it has legs. You, you hope and you hope and pray that you didn't, uh, get anything wrong, uh, or, you know, misspell somebody's name or make a statistical error. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I always enjoy feedback. So, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm at Boston College and, um, and, and my email's uh, serazio at bc.edu. So I always enjoy uh, hearing from, from anybody who, uh, who reads the work. And, and, and I, I, from the bottom of my heart, really appreciate the chance to talk to you about the project and really appreciate your, your listeners' time and appreciate, you know, anybody who, who spends some time with it. Um, you know, I, I'll, I'll finish with this, which is um, uh, I tell my students on the absolute last day of class, I say, uh, you know what is the greatest gift that you can give someone that you love? The absolute best gift more than anything else in the world, the best gift that you can give someone that you love is your attention. And uh, I'm always deeply grateful that my students who are required to sit there in the room uh, have uh, sometimes given me that. And uh, for those who, who read the work uh, that I write, uh, you know that is a, a gift that I can never pay back. So I'm, I'm very grateful for that. Well, I, I think that's your best words of wisdom right there <laughs> <laughs> because that is so true. And obviously you giving me some of your time has been an honor. And so, Michael, thank you very much. Thank you, Richmond. I appreciate, I appreciate it. it. Thank you. Regardless of your passion for sports, either playing or watching, or maybe even both, and in fact, 
You might not even be a fan of sports, but how sports is woven into the fabric of our society is undeniable. We live in a time where so many things can divide or distract us from technology to politics, but through all of that, it's amazing how sometimes a meaningless game can become so much more exposing the true power of sports. Now that finishes episode 114 and more of our content can be found by visiting our Rich Take on Sports YouTube channel where you can easily subscribe and you can find Dr. Serrazio's book at Amazon and other book sources. And remember, focus forward so we don't live in the past. All the best, everyone. You've been listening to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Visit richtakeonsports.com to subscribe and catch up on any episodes you might have missed. You can also follow us on Twitter at Rich Take Sports. Thanks for listening.